Hey gang, it's John. Thank you for listening to another episode of Deep Dive. This time we are welcoming back Derry Grayen. Derry is the guitarist, and I guess you could probably say main songwriter, for Canadian rockers Honeymoon Suite. I love this band. One of the best AOR rock bands of the 80s by far is Honeymoon Suite. And the big prize from 1986 is the album that we're going to talk about, and that was their big breakout. It includes Feel It Again, which is up there for one of the greatest songs ever, let alone greatest AOR uh, songs from the era. Uh, Bad Attitude, What Does It Take? We also talk about how Ian Anderson, of all people, ended up on this album. It is so good. Now, these guys also have a new single out called Tell Me What You Want that is now available. Get on whatever you got to get on to go check it out because it's great. We love Derry around here. We're so grateful to hear from people like him. If you are less familiar with Honeymoon Suite or you don't own this album, I don't think you have to care about hard rock to appreciate everything you're going to hear because this thing is amazing. All right? Hope you enjoy it. Well, so let me uh, let me give kind of the basis for some of the, you know, some of the factoids about this one. It was released in February of 1986. It went double platinum in Canada. I don't know what that means. Do you know what the sales figures are for double platinum in Canada? It's 100,000 for platinum in Canada. Okay. Okay, good. So, do you know do 200. You know what, yeah, 200. Do you know what you did in the, in the states? I believe it was somewhere around 250, maybe 300, oh, no. you know, okay. it, was, it was on its way to a, a goal did quite well, you know, for a second good. album. Good. Okay. Yeah, I wondered about that. I couldn't find uh, sales figures for the U.S. anyway. And we should establish it was produced by Bruce Fairbairn and Bob Rock, who were just on fire at that at this time, doing this kind of rock music. Yeah, yeah Bruce was amazing. And, and Bob was his engineer still at that time. Okay. And it was just before both of them exploded, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. What uh, what were they like to work with? I'm curious. Because their partnership oh, eventually became frayed, if I understand correctly. So I'm wondering what it was like back then. Yeah, well, no, I mean, they were they were great friends. Uh, they were a great team at that point. You know, they just had such a great thing going with um, Little Mountain Sound in Vancouver, which was their home base. And mm -hmm. that's where Bob really liked to work. That was kind of his studio. So he knew the place and Bruce love the room the big room there they they that's where those guys are from they lived out there mm -hmm. and they did so many of the records there the bon jovi and the aerosmith and, and all that and you can hear you know the mm -hmm. drum sounds on those mm -hmm. records the big room at little mountain it's it's classic so they just love the place yeah yeah how did you get connected up with them did uh did your label recommend it were you buddies how did this happen bruce had produced uh, a couple lover boy albums mm -hmm who were kind of in the, you know, the, the one kind of preceded us on the Canadian music scene, you know, doing so well. And, you know, the first, our first album had just done so amazing in Canada that I don't know if it was management or, or Warner Music up there somehow connected us. Maybe Bruce reached out because we were, of course, looking for a producer for the second record. Mm -hmm. He came into the picture and I, I didn't know at that point. He, yeah. I know he'd done Loverboy and some other great albums. Mm -hmm. And um, we just we just set up a meeting. I remember it was outside somewhere, and we're sitting mm -hmm. at picnic tables out west, and met him and talked for a couple of hours, and that was it. 
Okay. So we got to work with this guy. <laughs> That's great. I am curious about the the logistics of being a Canadian band because, and this, I think we touched on this a little bit when we talked before. I I'm at a loss as to why there's a discrepancy or a difference between success in Canada and success in the U.S. We're we're right next to each other. Our cultures are not that much different. It's not like South America or something like that. And so. What's caught? Why does do record labels just think? Do American rep, record labels just think? Ah, they're Canadian. I don't have to even think about them. They're someone else's problem. Or are they doing all they can to break you? What's the problem here? Well, it depends who you're signed to. I mean, it's totally different now because mm-hmm. some of the biggest artists in the world are are mm-hmm. Canadian. So, but back then, we subsequently we got signed to Warner's in Warner brothers in, in LA. So we're fortunate to have like the Canadian and the U S label working on our behalf, trying to break the band. So we are in a great position there. The Canadian label of course is just going to go nuts and work the record in Canada and, and break it. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have somebody in your corner in the U S they're not going to, they're not going to deal with it. But mm-hmm. we were very lucky because we were at the beginning of MTV Mm-hmm. And we got our videos on MTV. So Warner, Warner was still committed behind the record, and we got these great tours. And I think we were right for the U.S. market. I mean, yeah. our music crossed over. It, just, it was just that 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 time, the melodic. I think the music kind of spoke for us and, and opened the doors, especially and the videos too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would agree. I um, I, I love this album and your band and these songs so much. I just want them to have been accepted by the largest amount of people possible. And so when I see that, you know, it, we had hits in Canada and we did okay in the U.S. or whatever, it did break you, but it didn't break you as much as I feel like it should have. And so I, no, I'm wondering, yeah. like, who fell asleep on this, you know? Well, um, first album made a little bit of noise in the U.S. with New Girl Now. Mm-hmm. And then the second album was just amazing. The sound of it. Warner Brothers, I remember, they were jumping up and down when they heard the final mixes and they mm-hmm. got behind it. Good. And you have to remember, man, like all of a sudden we, we, we were on a ZZ Top tour for three months and then we ah. jumped to, well, we were at 38 Special, then ZZ Top, then we jumped onto the Heart Tour. We nice. couldn't have had better, better okay. tours that year. Good, Insane. good. Played all the building fell exposure. But long story short, it was we were on the upward tra- trajectory and radio loved us and everything else. But then it was time to go back in the studio for the third album, you know, uh, Racing After Midnight. Mm-hmm. And long story short, Bruce did Bon Jovi after yeah. he did us, and he was just booked up forever. He yeah. wasn't available to do the third album, and that was really disappointing. Yeah. So. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, that's why I wanted to pick this album specifically, is because I just think if you are a fan of AOR Rock of the 80s, and you don't know this one, you're sleeping on one of the classics, you know? Um, yeah. I am, uh, so do you remember, and this is something I like to ask sometimes, do you remember, was there anyone else we would know recording at Little Mountain or the Boogie Hotel or anywhere else you did these songs that we would know at the same time? Are you in one studio uh, and some other bands in the next studio? Of course. Yeah. Well, it's funny you say the Boogie Hotel, man. You've done your homework. The Boogie Hotel out in Long Island, this little old studio in a house where okay. we were told to go there because it was cool. We got there, and they just got so frustrated because nothing was wired up properly and things wouldn't work. So we did a fair amount of recording there, and then Bob Rock just said, "To hell with this, man! We got to go back to Little Mountain and get this shit yeah. done because um, yeah. it's not happening." So we went back to Little Mountain, and wow, night and day, what a really? great place! But 
when we were cutting tracks for the big prize, Little Mountain had two big studios. White Snake was in the other one. Mm-hmm. It was David Coverdale and John Sykes, you know, the big yeah. White Snake album. Yep, we were working yep. on, you know, Still of the Night and yeah. and all this, and you could hear them tracking. I think Ainsley Dunbar was doing drum tracks. And nice. We were in there every day, and there was a common lounge with a pinball machine, and Coverdale would be out there smoking his Marlboros and, <laughs> and getting coffee and playing and just hanging out like a regular, yeah. super nice guy. John Sykes would walk around with his guitar playing all day. You know, nobody had an idea what that album would do. Yeah, it was just you know White Snake's making a record over there. Right, and Coverdale was one of my heroes because I'm a Deep Purple kid mm. from day one. Okay, and so he was like a hero for me to meet. You know, we'd go out uh-huh. and have drinks after and stuff. So that's that was a great time. Oh man, was Tony Kitane around at all at that time? No. No, I okay. think, you know, I think that happened after she came, she did the videos. Yeah, I think they recorded the album and then they met and she came into the videos. Yeah, I think you're right. I just wondered. Okay. Um, well, that's great. I love that Whitesnake album too. And David seems like such a, such a charming gentleman. He could just hold court and tell you stories all night long, you know, and they would all be fun. That's how he kind of yeah. seems to me. Yeah. Yeah, he's an English gentleman. All right. Um, by the way, we should say you won a Juno Award for Group of the Year for this album, right? Yes, we did. Yes. So there was, uh, was... Canada embraced you fully, it seems like. Oh, man. Like, out of the box on the first album. Great. We had four, four singles, four videos. Just, it exploded. And yeah. But the second album went platinum in like five days. Oh, because nice. the excitement was there and mm-hmm. there's music in Canada. Yeah. You know, I come back to the video thing. It really did a lot for bands back then being on the cusp of that whole revolution. Sure um, it just pushed it over the top. Yeah, sure did. Okay. All right. Let's kick it off with track one. Bad attitude. This is one of the best album openers of any rock album of that decade. No question. It um, was famously used in the what was it the last episode of Miami Vice a few years after the fact, which is perfect. Your all the songs on this sound like they were ready made for Miami Vice or Beverly Hills Cop or one of the or Lethal Weapon, which you did the song for that kind of stuff. You know, 
muscular but emotive mm-hmm. rock and roll. I am curious. The, the lyrics mentioned the big prize. What what came first? Were you always planning on naming the album the big prize after that lyric, or how did it work? No, the title came from the song because, as you know, I'm sure you've talked to a lot of bands. It's a bitch trying to name the record if you don't have the name beforehand. Right. It's usually the last thing bands do, and it's it's hell mm-hmm. because you've got this this thing that you've worked on and it's like what are we going to call it because you have to live with it yeah. so I don't know I guess sometimes naming an, al- an album I've done this before just like let's go over the song titles and the lyrics and pull something from there mm-hmm. so that's what happened you know you saw the album cover with the, the big bride on there so yeah. they okay. ran with it it worked okay yeah okay I wondered if that was like a theme or uh, you know you mentioned it in the lyrics and, and this is motivating the creativity or the creative process but it sounds like it was an afterthought like we had to think of something i think it's i think it's a tongue-in-cheek thing the big prize you know yeah you know glittering compromises and this was also the first single off of the album but i don't see that it charted in either canada or america you know it it was the lead off track a lot of times the labels would put out probably not the strongest song the strongest pop radio song but they put out a track just to because that one was more for AOR show people that they, they, you know, it was a lead off heavy track to kind of like break the ice and show people the new sound because the production on that record is stellar mm-hmm. I mean just the sound of it every track I mean it's, it sounds great on the radio so yeah. they let off with that attitude because you've always got to come back with something the second single's always got to be better. Yeah, good point. Now, you wrote this song. Was there any any recollections or stories about the creation of it? The riff that starts the song, the chord mm. progression, it's just monstrous. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times I'll write the music first, I'll be jamming something on the guitar, and that thing's had such a great vibe. And then I went into the verse, the chunky verse, and mm-hmm. a lot of the times the music will tell me what it's about, and I just it kind of has a nasty sarcastic yeah. feel to it mm. so i guess bad attitude i mean just bad attitude <laughs> you know you do because yeah. we've met at that point we'd been through so much that we had met people with bad attitudes people weren't exactly what they said they were and they'll be shysters out there so yeah. i had a lot to write about and i think that song that song was perfect for it great you're the primary songwriter in this band. I was going to kind of save this for later, but it's coming up now. Is it uh, is it more of a democracy than we would think? When you bring a, ba- a song to your band, does everyone have to buy into it and feel strongly and cast a vote? Mm, no. I mean, okay. we are, it was all pretty democratic. I mean, Gary and Dave really weren't writers, so they are fine. They were perfectly happy to just be, mm-hmm. you know, in the situation we were in because you can't have five songwriters in a band. Right. I was fortunate enough to, to have lots of ideas, and Johnny was such a great singer. And mm-hmm. Ray Coburn was in the band at that point, too. You have to remember mm-hmm. he wrote Feel Again and Lost and Found. Yeah. Ray was really stepping up as a, as a writer as well, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like whatever works. Um, we even worked with some outside writers, but at the end of the day, you're, if you're working with Fairburn, yeah. he would send us back to the to the, the drawing board. He would say, you guys aren't ready yet. He's very particular about the songs. And that's another good thing about working with him because he was a songwriter. Mm-hmm. And he did this with Aerosmith and all the other bands. But 
I do want to say, I just remember with that attitude, we're talking track by track. One thing yeah. I will remember there, I mean, it was cut at Little Mountain um, with all that drum sound, but at the end, uh, we were done there. It had no guitar solo on it. Mm. And I remember we took the record over to the farmyard in England where we mixed our first album because we wanted to work with, with the engineer over there at that studio. Mm. I remember doing the solo, the last thing, the song was mixed and uh, just pulling out a guitar and there was a little mess of boogie in the studio mm. and just kind of throwing the solo on there at the last minute. But really? it came out amazing. Yeah. Okay, I have a lot of questions for you around solos because I'm fascinated by the science of them. But I want to save it until there's another song that's going to come up in a little bit that also has a pretty epic, well, a lot of these have epic solos from you. So let's put a pin in that because I have a lot of questions around you and your thought process behind a solo. One thing I am curious about in regards to Bad Attitude, I hear a lot that bands just, you talk about just suffering through what are we going to name this album. They do kind of the same thing over the sequencing. And uh, I'm curious if that, if out of the gate, you knew this album has to begin with Bad Attitude. It's like the first album starts with New Girl Now. Yeah. It just punches you right in the face. That's you it. You don't start with a ballad. Yeah. And I think the third album started with Looking Out. You, you, you don't want something, you know, you want to hit something, hit them off the top with a good, good rock track. That's my right. philosophy. Mine too. Philosophy. Yeah. My favorite albums, I just, I want it to, to kick off. Yeah. and be strong right off the top. So I think when you look at all the other tracks in the record, it was a natural to start it because it builds from there. I agree. Yeah, I agree. I um, And I'm a big track one person. If, if the track one, if track one is good, I'm going to give it, I'm going to give this album a lot of leeway because I'm excited to hear what's coming next. And that's how I feel about this one. All right, track two, feel it again. If you would just be sensible Find me indispensable. I play determined destiny. That places you with me. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wanting you here in the sheets. Wandering around incomplete. Waiting so long. First, let me tell you a little bit of my own personal history with this. I um, I don't know if you are on Spotify or are aware, but at the end of every year, they tell you your stats. And this is the most, this is the band you listen to the most this year. This is the song you listen to the most this year. In 2018, which was the year that you and I talked the first time, uh, Honeymoon Suite was my most listened to band that year. And Feel It Again was my most listened to song of that year. And uh, it's funny because I've known that I've known that song all my life, but for whatever reason, I just happened to kind of rediscover it that year, and I've been playing it on a loop ever since. I am of the opinion that it's got maybe the greatest chorus of any rock song of the uh, of that decade. This and "Living on a Prayer" they don't get any better than the choruses of this song. 
This hit number 34 in the U.S., number 16 in Canada. And uh, it was written by Ray. And I'm wondering the story of Ray bringing this song to you guys and saying, you know, I think I got something here. Well, it's like all the other ones that I would bring in. Everybody, like after the first record, which I wrote most of it, Ray was a very hard worker and his sound was so big part of, mm -hmm. of the Honeymoon Suite sound against my guitar. He would come up with these great keyboard parts and he would... You know, he just stepped up. He when we were collect, you know, woodshedding songs, he had that idea. He had that nice verse progression, and yeah. we liked it. And Bruce liked it. And then he he had this this chorus. Now, Ray, what Ray would bring in? It's funny with the way songs start out. Uh, he's a keyboard player, and not not really a great vocalist. So he kind of sing quietly to Johnny, and, mm. and we have to take it from way down here to up there. So he would bring in a very rough idea but by the time it, it went out the door with everybody's parts on it mm -hmm. it was a, it was a stellar track you yeah. know and just everybody kind of along the way bruce had some great ideas and i'm sure bob rock put some great like production things in there we took idea like a lot of them to to a you know an amazing song yeah yeah besides you and johnny are any of the members of the band from this era in the band again today? Yes. Are um, they? Okay, I thought you original. guys all came back together, but I wasn't sure. We did. Dave and Gary are back in the band for like 10 years. That's what I thought. Um, Ray Colburn left a long time ago, then we had Rob Cruise, uh -huh. and then we had a, uh, Peter Nunn, who's been our keyboard player for like 20 years. So okay. Okay. for all intents and purposes, it's the original band. It's been that way a long time, and I love it. Good. Okay. Good. I've never been. I've been chomping at the bits to see uh, to see uh, Honeymoon Suite in concert, and I was looking at the website to see who all was in the band now, and I noticed there was a reunion a few years ago, but I wasn't sure if all those people stuck it out until today. But it sounds like Ray's well, off doing his own thing. Yeah, he left after the big prize. He left the band, which was the drag. Yeah. Thought he would, you know, want to do some other things, and he wasn't happy, and a lot of stuff going on, as okay. you know, yep. as a, in a lot of bands. Anyways, it's the original band now, and mm -hmm. it's it, the Dave and Gary did leave for a while. Uh, you know, things did kind of fall apart later on in the story, yeah. but that's not unusual. Oh, no. But they're they're back, and I love it. Good, I'm glad. Um, now I wanted to, you know. The rest of the song outside of the chorus feels like a very different song. It feel, it's got, it reminds me a little bit of uh, Billy Joel's This Is The Time, sort of like a tropical beach, but late at night. You know, it's, uh, it, you're doing some amazing guitar work on here. You posted, I think on Facebook Live or YouTube the other day, you recreating the, gu the guitar parts of this song. It was so fascinating. Was it always meant to be this kind of slower, more romantic, tropical thing? Not not that it's really tropical, this romantic thing and tell the chorus? Or were those two songs bolted together? What was the thinking? Well, this is what I was saying earlier. If you could have been in the rehearsal when Ray first brought that in and just started you know, playing it quietly on his keyboard, yeah. if you could have heard it then, and then what we did with it by the time it went out the door, mixed uh -huh. and everything, it's, it's two different things. And the verse... 
I always had this quiet thing going on, and I did that really clean kind of guitar thing in it, and it was just so cool. So I think us putting our, our stuff in there, the chorus kicks in like a monster, and that was probably Bruce and probably me too, Hmm. saying because i'm into big choruses yeah when i heard that i said it's got to go from see how the verse ends it's so soft Uh and then the chorus comes in and knocks you out and that was probably a lot to do with me Hmm. because that's the way i like to roll and it it made it like so big yeah yeah it's the best i am curious who's doing the backing vocals on this that's actually johnny is it really? Actually, Johnny's. So the, the feel it again. Yeah. The answering part. Yeah. That's that's Johnny, man. I can't I can't sing that that high. I mean, I'll tell you, there's a sample going on because it's so friggin' high. But that guy's got such pipes. Yeah. That's actually Johnny. Yeah. Okay. I wondered because whoever's singing back there is doing an amazing job, and in the video, it looks like it's meant to be you. And I thought. If that's Derry's singing voice, he needs to put out a solo album at some point because it sounds fantastic. So yeah, no, it makes sense. It's Johnny. No, the 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 answering vocal I think was Johnny. But however, there's a lot of serious high harmonies in in, in the rest of the chorus, and I did a lot of those. Oh really? Studio. That's me. Oh, good for you. But it's double tracked and triple tracked. Yeah, I yeah. Did tons of them. And keep in mind, this is way before the days of auto tune. True. So. We did albums the real way, like old school, like you got to sing it and sing it in key. And if you have to do 14 takes, then do it. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. All right, great. Yep, I think that's one of the best singles, rock singles of the era. I I, um, absolutely love that song. I do. Yeah, Uh, it's it's stellar. And I did a, yeah, I did a guitar tutorial for it the other day, and it just never gets old, man. I watched it. I loved it. Um, okay, track three, Lost and Found. This is another Ray Coburn uh, writing song. Very keyboard heavy. I am curious if now the keyboards are were the sound of the time and I love that sound. When I go that's what makes these albums fun and comforting today is to feel the nostalgia of what rock music was like back in that time. But I know that some people might feel like the artists themselves might feel like the keyboards date it or they make it too wimpy or that cuts down on the rock quotient. Do you are you okay with the amount of keyboards on this album oh i'm totally okay i mentioned earlier ray his keyboard is a big part of our our sound 
Yeah. Uh, if you listen to the first two albums, that's why we had a keyboard player. We weren't a guitar band per se. When I first met Johnny, it's like we've got to, you know, he was adamant, we, you know, we've got to have a keyboard player. I love your guitar, but we need mm -hmm. keyboards. Ray was really good at just finding great parts to, around the vocal and the guitar mm -hmm. and great sounds, even for Ben in the early mid 80s. Yeah. The sounds weren't like they are today. He only had the Yamaha DX7 and things like that, but he found he would stay up all night in his room programming and keyboards, and he came up with some great parts that were in just the right places, like Bad Attitude's a great example. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I love Lost and Found, and I want to give a shout-out on this. The drums from Dave Betts on this are really stellar. Everybody has a moment to shine, I think, on this album, and this is, to me, Dave's one of Dave's finer moments is uh, the drum parts on Lost and Found. They're fantastic. Oh, cool. I'll tell yeah. them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Lost and Found, again, it's, it's a high-energy track, mm -hmm. and I love that. There's a track on our first record called Funny Business, mm. and it, it's it's I love that stuff because it comes from my new wave and punk days, which I, I was in a band before Honeymoon Suite, and I just love that fast, you know, I think every album should have a, a fast kind of totally. cooker on it. So Lost and Found... Had that had that energy, and I love playing that song. Good. Are most of what songs are what songs from this album are still in the set list today? I'm guessing the big ones are, but like what else? Well, feel it again. What does yeah. it take? Yeah. Bad attitude. Okay. I'm think those those three for sure. Okay. Yeah. All right. Track four. What does it take? This is uh, this is another one of the songs that in America anyway, you are most known for, and that's because it was played at the very end of One Crazy Summer. The two of us are one of a kind Our combination ain't easy to find Why do I get a feeling from you? Things ain't right do you need something new? Knowing how both of us live Leaves us so little to give If I could grow wings I would do anything Just to keep you with me Can't you see? If It's an odd, that, that, I love that movie. I've seen it countless times. I own it. I always look forward to the end when this wonderful power ballad comes on. Tell us again the story of how you got included in One Crazy Summer. We were on Warner Brothers. Our, our American label was Warner Brothers in LA. And our publishing company, I think, was Screen Gems down there. You know, you had um, Warner Brothers movies or pictures right next door to the to the label it's kind of everybody knew everybody and how did it get in the movie i don't know probably had a great publisher who was pitching okay. you know or somebody yeah. at the label these were internal workings or things that management was doing we had great management and they were just trying to plug the music every everywhere and probably just you know yeah probably just pitching it 
or yeah. somebody came to us and uh, the music person for the movie said, I, I love this track and yeah. it got in there. I don't know exactly how it got in there, but it did. Okay. I, I got to ask, have you ever seen this movie? Yes, I, I have okay. ages ago, Okay, <laughs> but, but I did, because that's the Demi Moore one, right? Yeah, John Cusack, yes. Yeah, well, you know, she's, she was, you know, I was yeah. a, you know she's, everybody, you know, she was quite, quite <laughs> beautiful. It. Still is, I mean, yeah. yeah, we all enjoyed her movies. Okay. Sure. Yeah, I've had, I have kind of a, a fixation on 80s movie soundtracks, because I watched so many movies back then, and. I and so whenever I have someone on here who's got a prominent song in a soundtrack, so often when I ask them about it, they've never seen the movie. They know it's out there because they see some line item on a royalty statement, but they don't have they've yeah. never watched or cared or anything like that. So I wondered if you were in that in that group. No, anytime that one of my songs gets in anything, a commercial or a movie or a TV show, I make it a point to to watch, you know, yeah. to go see it it's still a thrill for me to sit in the movie theater and hear my song come up, hear our song come up and see the name in the credits. Of course. Yeah. 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 Good. Okay. So what does it take reach number 21 in Canada, number 52 in the U S I thought and hoped it had done better than that. I remember hearing it on this, on the radio. This was the third single. One thing I think is kind of interesting about this song, and I hope this doesn't sound too critical. It sounds like no one was sure how to end it it sort of fades it sort of fades in an odd way it's not that it's bad or anything but it uh, it's so powerful and then the ending kind of is kind of this meandering drum thing i don't know am i right about this or was that totally thought out and on purpose i think that it was totally intentional and i think okay. it's very powerful at the end because sure. it, it ends on this big down you know crash on the on the d chord that Good double point. crash and then I think it's cool because it builds up to this huge thing and then there's a release. Yeah, good and point. And I love the end, the way that the drum fills go and the guitar mm -hmm. and it kind of fades out. I, I think it's it's cool that it does that. It's a release. Okay. Good. I like it too. It just sat, It's so different from the rest of the song that I wondered if if it was a jam that was just sort of someone left it running or if this was really thought out and planned. I was just curious what the thinking was. Um, Maybe. Maybe okay. sometimes that happens when you cut bed tracks. Maybe it was just like it happened, but yeah. that happens on every record. It's a, sure. it's a happy accident. And Good maybe point. we just said, that's so friggin' cool. Let's leave it. Yeah. Yeah. I am curious. This song would have been tailor made for all of those monster ballad compilation CDs that were coming out in the eighties and the nineties. And I was curious if this is, if that's true, is this one of the songs that, gets you know do you see more royalties for this one than others because it shows up on those kinds of monster ballad compilations yeah it does okay. it's been on a bunch of those and some you know some tv and stuff like that it gets used over and over it's done well it's, okay yeah it's been good it's been good to me is this um it would you say it's your top money maker of all your songs i would say New Girl Now, hmm. um, hands down. Okay. It's the most, well, what does it take for sure? Second to that, Burning in Love. People love that, Stay in the Light. If I'm going again, you know, looking at airplays yeah. and uses, that's about, that's kind of okay. way it, it goes. Okay. Yeah, I was curious. Okay, track five. This is the last song on side one, One by One. 
Um, you come back from this power ballad with another killer rocker. It reminds me a little oh. bit of Urgent. Yeah. Yeah. Can I can I just backtrack a bit? You sure, um, please. On uh, what does it take? I don't know. I I just have one memory of when I wrote the song. Please. Because a lot of the songs for me, it's I remember where I wrote them, mm-hmm. what hotel I was in. It's really weird, but all my songs like bring I back this it. memory of where I was, and yeah. it's all over the place. Please. That one, we were still in the clubs. That song was being written when our first record was done. It just wasn't ready yet. I remember going into a bar in the afternoon. We were playing a nightclub, doing like a, a six-nighter and living at a band house. And I would go over to the club during the day and just get up on stage and play quietly just to practice mm-hmm. on Ray's piano because I wanted to, you know, I wanted to write. Mm-hmm. And that song I was writing, What Does It Take, quietly in this bar. Really? People drinking. And I remember playing, playing that and, and writing it there in this little town we were in. And, you know, six months later, wherever, it it ended up on the next record. That's great. Cool. And you wrote it on a piano. Yeah, Ray used to have one of those Yamaha CP70 mm-hmm. uh, pianos, which were really popular then. And um, I, I started out, my first instrument was piano when I was a kid. I yeah. played piano since I was five and picked up the guitar later on. So I still play the piano quite a bit. I love it. Good. Yeah, I mean, it's such a piano-driven song. It's so perfect and beautiful for that instrument. So I, I meant to ask you about that. You're prim- Obviously, you're known as a fantastic guitar player, but a song like this that's so piano-driven, I wondered if you were able to uh, write it on that. Sounds like you were. So, yeah, this Written is... on piano, yeah. Yeah, one of the great power ballads. Thank you. Yeah, I love it. Um, okay, track, okay, yeah, track five, one by one. Uh, as I mentioned, you're kind of going back to the rockers again. This song reminds me a lot of Urgent by Foreigner. It's got kind of that synthy, pulsy sound to it. And there's a great solo in here. And this is where I wanted to ask you about the science of a solo. Tell me about writing a guitar solo. Do you go in, do you write it out notes? Do you think of, do you stay up nights worrying about it? Or do you trust yourself to come up with something on the spot and then remember? How does it work? I do lose sleep over it because it's there's always that point in the album once those tracks are done the vocals are done where Derry's got to go in and do do his leads uh-huh. and that's uh, that's stressful because I want them to be so good a lot of the solos what I've always done on every record is I do my homework I'll take the track home and I'll play it over and over because mm. the solo has to speak just like the vocal does yeah. and it's not just riffing a million notes it has to 
it has to be melodic. You have to be able to sing it. And it's like the favorite, my favorite solos of other artists. It just, they have to sing, you know, they have to yeah. be perfect for the song. So I would spend a lot of time ahead of time practicing. I would spend days and, and bring what I thought was cool. And uh, they would say, nah, yeah, it's okay. Can you try something else? And I remember this happened with Ted Templeman too. They would just tell me to play something completely different off the cuff, and I'd be shitting my pants. Like, <laughs> I have no idea. So just start playing something. And sometimes on the spot, you'll find, you'll hit something that's really good. Yeah. But most of the times it's planned, and we kind of work it, and we spend a lot of time, a lot of takes, mm. and the sound has to be there. And I'm pretty picky about it, but I think it, it, were, it shows. Yeah. If I love you... the end result. I, your, your solos are so great. And I'm just curious, you know, if you are doing a solo and you're recording it and you hit a bum note and, you know, a regular schlub like me doesn't, may not even know that you've hit a bum note. We just think it all sounds great. Are you beating yourself up? Do you start all over again from the beginning? Do you punch in the right note? Do you live with the bad note and then work back from there? How, what do you do in that moment? Well, back then there was no pro tools and we were, recording on two inch you know 24 track tape yeah so there was no uh sampling and moving stuff around i would i would punch in what okay. we would do is maybe do five or six of the same solo uh -huh. and then kind of piece them together or take the best bits of each one and then piece them together and punch punch things in or, uh -huh. or bounce them that's what they would do they would bounce the best parts together right because rarely any guitar player not going to go in and play a solo top to bottom and love every note and do it mm. perfectly. I don't think that happens. Mm. Um, so that's how they did it. I mean, a prime example, if you listen to the solo in Jump Van Halen, mm -hmm. there's, there's no way that Eddie could have played that. It, there's such an obvious punch in there. Like mm. it's, it, it's amazing, but he, he's even said, I can't, I can't actually play that. <laughs> Anyways, it worked, whatever works. Yeah. Okay. And then um, do you, I mean, do you re recreate these solos note for note whenever you play them live? And if you do, do you actually write out by hand the notes of a guitar solo or are you member, remembering it by going back and listening? How do you prepare yourself that way? Hell yeah. I mean, I play that solo if note for note or as best I can. It's not going to be exactly, but it's what people know on the record so i'm not going to go up there and do yeah. something different because i've seen other bands and the guitar player will just kind of play some of the notes but just do his own thing yeah because it satisfies him but that's not the point yeah. but no i don't write anything out in rock i don't write stuff out yeah. it's all just in my head and from memory and from feel but okay. i try and play the same solo as i did on the record okay Cool. Yeah, I'm imagining, you know, like a like Miles Davis or John Coltrane or something. And no, no two recordings those guys did were ever the same, you know, because it's always kind of the moment. And so I wondered how much of that plays into rock music or if it's more thought out and very calculated. It sounds like it is. Now, you mentioned you wrote this one, too, and you can remember where you were when you wrote a lot of these. Is, is there a story behind One by One? First of all, I want to know who this is, what, who this song is about. Did a girl do you wrong? Oh, lots of girls did me wrong. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know. Yeah. I just remember working it out with Ray because he 
you know, there's that keyboard part off the top. Mm-hmm. And I was playing that on guitar and I wanted it on keyboard. So I, remember, I think I remember working with him to try and get that kind of sound. So that's a perfect example of keyboards and guitar in this band. Ray mm-hmm. plays this great, uh, you know, riff on the keyboards off the top. And then I counter it with the guitar kind of chugging on the bottom. And it was just kind of a track that I wrote. It wasn't about anybody in, in particular, but um, I don't know. I don't know. It just came together. Okay. As a rock track, it was fun. Yeah. And it had a great soul. Yeah, it's killer. Okay, side two, first track, Wounded. This one's written by Johnny. I, uh, I don't know. Was Johnny a prolific songwriter, or is this kind of an abnormality? No, Johnny was always uh, writing uh, songs. He, you know, he was a writer in the band he was in before Honeymoon Suite. Okay. And he was always kind of, he had a few riffs, but Johnny wasn't as pro- prolific as me. He just didn't take, you know, the same kind of time or the dedication I had. Not, and I'm not meaning that as a slag. No, I get it's it. Just that, you, you all know, have your jobs, got, and he's doing his job. Yeah, well, the singers yeah. probably get the hardest job because it's the voice, yeah. and that's the weakest link in the chain. So he would have to go to bed and get some sleep and not mm-hmm. stay up all night writing like Ray and I could, you know. Mm-hmm. So anyways, Johnny had a few ideas, and after the first record, everybody kind of like stepped up to the plate and brought their ideas, and Johnny had this song, uh, Wounded, which he brought in, and I think I finished it with him. Um, had some great parts, had a great chorus, and we finished, you know, I remember the li- writing the lyric, and uh, it turned out it, we made it Honeymoon Suite. Yeah, yeah, it's so good. And there's, talk about solos, there's a great solo from you, but just before it, there's a great solo from, I assume, Ray, this really fantastic piano solo <clears throat> that out of the blue. Do you remember anything about the recording of that? Was it, again, going back to the science of solos, are you thinking... Does someone say to you guys, I want Ray to do a solo and then I want you to do a solo, Derry? How does it work? I don't know. Well, that was, no, man. Like, see us, what I'm talking about with Ray. And yeah. the same thing in, in the song called Way Babies. He would do these great, like, off-the-wall things that somehow fit. Yeah. And I think maybe maybe it was probably Bruce Fairburn that said, uh, why don't we do a double solo? Nice. Uh, in this part in Wounded, instead of the guitar solo coming in off the top, maybe we were jamming one day and Ray started playing this crazy stuff. 
And mm. Bruce probably said, Ray, what is that? I love that. You should do a solo of that. That's the, the way these kind of things happen. So we put an extra eight bars in there. Nice. And Ray did his thing. And then I came in with mine. Okay. <laughs> I love it. I meant to look this up before we talked and I forgot. What else, what else has Ray done? Is he primarily known for being a member of Honeymoon Suite or did he go on to work <clears throat> with other people that we might know? I believe he went and toured with Corey Hart. Oh, nice. uh, a little bit after he left the band, and I think he laid low for a long time and played with a few Canadian bands. I'm not really that much in touch with them, mm. but in the last little while, <clears throat> excuse me, Ray is now with uh, Roger Hodson. Oh, nice! Supertramp. Yeah. He yeah he's he's touring with him now. Which great. Is a great gig for him. Yeah. Good. Good. I'm glad. Speaking of gigs, how are you guys doing with being quarantined? I mean, everybody is grounded. Everyone's affected in, you know, by what's going on. Are you guys going to be okay? Are you, you probably don't have, even have an idea of when you'll be able to go back to work. No, it sucks. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's the worst thing that could happen, man. Yeah. Like the whole tour, the whole summer and... Like, I don't mind. It's nice to be home with the family, and I'm playing a lot of guitar, mm -hmm. but I'm not working. And this is this is awful. What's happening? Yeah. Um, you know, in the world. I mean, my you know, we lost some gigs. Okay, fine, but you know, there's much greater sadness out there, which is awful. But yeah. for for us, I want to get back out there, but only when it's it's safe. You know, yeah. you can't. Yeah. It's 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 crazy. Not go on about it but no i um i really want to get back out there i, bet. I really do it's it's hard it's yeah. hard i can't remember do you where do you live you're back up in canada are you back in uh nova, nova scotia somewhere or where do you work where do you no live? no no i i live in illinois oh that's I've, right I've been, i forgot about this yeah, yeah i i've been in the u.s about 16 17 years now i used to live in toronto okay but i'm i live uh, a couple hours outside of chicago in illinois and right. um, looking to relocate soon. I want to get down to Nashville. I love it there because really? I go there a lot. And that's, yeah, yeah, that's where I'm at right now. I live in the U.S., but I tour up and come to Canada so much. Yeah. Live in both places, you know. What's motivating the move to Nashville? Is it just because that's where Music City is these days and gives you the opportunity, kind of opens your, your world and your network and your Rolodex? Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. I just know so many people i've been going down there for years going back and forth and working and it's where it's a music town man it's where yeah. all the writers and the musicians and my people are and because uh, where yeah. i live my little town is just not a big music center but right. um it's where my wife is from okay but now the time has come because my daughter uh, actually she's a singer songwriter and she's actually living in nashville because she goes to oh. belmont okay so yeah great Okay. It's just, it's just a natural uh, move. It's Got everybody's it. there. All the writers are there. Good. Okay. That's fascinating. All right. Um, okay. Track seven. Words in the wind.
It's funny, this is the song that reminds me most of Miami Vice. To be honest, it sounds like something that Keith Forsey might have produced back in the day, if you remember Keith Forsey. He, um, specifically a, a song called Beat So Lonely by Charlie Sexton, who was also a really great mm -hmm. uh, songwriter and guitar player back around this same time. It's uh, this combination of drums and guitars, but it feeling almost mechanized or robotic in a way, but yeah. it still feels good. It still feels like great rock and roll. Do you know what I'm talking about? Exactly. And that's, that's another one I wrote on keyboards. Ah. Now that I think about it, that initial riff, I was banging that on a piano and I showed it to Ray. And uh, it did have that robotic feel. And if you hear the production in the front with the, uh, I think we used a Lindrum there. Mm -hmm. um, it was the early days of drum machines and drum samples. So it was really cool what they did. And it just turned out to be a great song. The chorus, again, lifts right up mm -hmm. and it's big. And one of my favorite parts is the middle section. It's just stellar when it yeah. breaks down and the solo. Yeah, everything about that song. And it's so, it is so Miami Vice. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah, I love it too. And uh, I love your cascading guitar licks. And I we should stop for just a second and just praise Johnny up and down for being one of the finest rock vocalists and underappreciated. That guy, I think I told you this when we talked before, Derry, the two of you are one of like the greatest matches made in rock and roll heaven. Your songs and his voice. And not to take anything away from everyone else in the band, but how lucky are the two of you that you found each other to bring out the best in each other, you know? Well, thank, thank you. And it's, I mean, I'm very lucky that that just kind of happened because at that point I was looking for, I was trying to make it in other bands, but I realized that every great band always has usually two people and it's mm. a singer and a keyboard player or a guitar player like Richie and, and John or Jimmy Page and Robert yeah, Plant. That's not it. that we're any, I'm not comparing us to them, but sure. in terms of the nucleus of a band, mm -hmm. like Lou Graham and Mick Jones. I that's mean, it. It, it. That's that's the nucleus. And yeah. I was, Johnny's just got, had the pipes when I first heard him sing. I said, that's it. Mm -hmm. This is this is the guy we can, I know this guy's voice is going to be good on radio. That's so rare. Yeah, it's special. The, you, the two of you have a chemistry that is special. And uh, again, I keep saying these things because I just I feel like they go underappreciated or they don't they're not they don't get the attention they deserve. When you talk about Mick Jones and Lou Graham, that's exactly what it is. But, you know, they're Mick and Lou and you guys deserve to get more credit. You know, you're up there, too. I just anyway, I just think it's yeah, you're such a strong band. Yeah, well, thank you. Uh, he's um, I was like, you know, lucky. Looking yeah. to find that because uh, I've seen a lot of bands and they tell them, sorry, but you haven't got it. You need a singer. <laughs> it's true. You need a singer. Yeah. Yeah. He's got classic pipes. Okay. Track eight. All along you knew. This is the, this is the outlier.
It features Ian Anderson of Jethro Tull on flute, of all things. It did reach number 65 in Canada. It was the fourth single off this album. You're going to have to tell me again how Ian came into the picture. I am, I am a yeah. huge Jethro Tull fan, primarily of their 70s work. But how did this happen? Well, the first American tour that we did when, when our first album came out, like in 84, we were actually opening for Jethro Tull in, oh, nice. in the U.S. They did... I forget what the album was. I think it was Under Wraps but right around that time. That's it. Under yeah. Wraps. That's right. Yeah. Martin Barr was in the band and mm -hmm. Ian did an arena tour. And we got on the on the bill. Honeymoon Sweet and Jess Hotel. We'll yes. figure that one. Wow. So, but it, it turned out okay. Anyways, we did a tour with them and it was awesome. Got to know them quite well. Mm -hmm. Comes time, you know, a year later, the second album is done. All Along You Knew is a finished track in Vancouver. We take it over to England, but it's got this big section in the middle with nothing. Yeah. Uh, maybe a few guitar bits. Maybe, why don't we just call up Ian Anderson? He should play flute on this. You know, <laughs> as a joke, we're probably sitting around the studio one night. Mm -hmm. And somebody said, that's a great freaking idea. Mm -hmm. So we had management make the calls. Turns out, because we were mixing in this studio outside of London, out in the country, Ian only lived maybe half an hour away. No way. So we put a call into him and he said, I'd love to. Wow. I've never done that. I've never guessed it on anybody's album before. I'd love to. So here I am at the farmyard mixing uh, All Along You Knew. It's, it's basically done. It just needs a solo. And Bruce Fairburn has to go back to Canada because he's got another commitment. So he leaves me there and to, to work with Ian. So I had to produce that session along with the engineer. Really? And, and I grew up with Jethro Tull. Yeah. I mean, that's my generation. And like, it's, it's kind of um, scary. He came in, just went out on the floor, and here's me sitting behind the board with the engineer telling Ian Anderson what to do, you know? <laughs> so we played him the, you know, the bars and whatever he played, and the guy just like right off the top rips these great solos. He probably did two or three takes, and he says, how's that? And every one of them was freaking great. Yeah. So he said, let's just do two or three, Ian, and you know, we'll pick from there. And uh, they were all amazing. And it was done. Mm. We, we, we wrapped, we, we had a beer, and, and he went home. <laughs> now, I am curious, have you crazy. two ever, yeah, have you two ever performed this song together live? Oh, no. Has yeah. he ever come up and played with us? That's what um, I'm wondering. No. No, okay. That would, that would be friggin' cool, but it no, he never did. Uh, okay. But Ray did. The amazing thing is if you hear what Ray, Ray sampled his flute and copped it note for note. So mm -hmm. when we did that song live, it was amazing. Now, when you, how many times does he have to hear it before he comes up with, before he can play on it? And does he come to the place where you're recording and he sits in the control room and you play it back for him three or four times? Okay, I think I have some ideas. Then he goes out and does it. How, do, what, how does this work? You know what? I think, and this was back in the days of cassettes, I mm -hmm. think the sensible thing would have been to send him a cassette. Okay. I, I believe that I would have been the first one to, once he agreed to say, get it, shoot him a cassette so he's not coming in cold. Okay. That's what happened. He probably gave it a listen at home. I think that's what happened. And then he had some ideas. Because you hear right off the top, he's got that nice melody line. Mm -hmm. 
and I don't think that was off the cuff. I think he was somewhat familiar with the track. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I was curious how long it takes and how many listens he's got to do. Does he just show up and hear it once and then go for it, or does he get to you know sit with it for a little while? He could just pick up the flute and play. I don't think he needs any preparation. He's just right. amazing. He's just amazing. Yeah. Isn't it interesting too? Um, and you know, you know this as a guitar player, you can just tell when it's him on the flute, just like you can tell when it's Stevie Wonder on the harmonica, something about, or Richard Thompson on the guitar or whatever. Some people just have these, these trademark sounds and it's just their breath. Isn't that fascinating that it happens that way for some people? Yeah, and if you listen to it, he's doing, you know, he makes the little mouth noises yes. there, like, toop, toop, and that stuff. And he was doing that right in front of me, and I'm just, like, just getting chills inside. I was trying to contain myself and act cool. Yeah. But I was listening to this when I was 13 and 14 years old, listening to Aqualung, you know, and yeah. curious, doing the same thing. That was a cool, cool moment in my life. Yeah, yeah, good. Yeah, that's two of my favorite things coming together on that song. That's a great story. Uh, okay, second to last track, Once the Feeling. Um, this song reminded me, and I and I realized after I wrote this down that there might be a connection here, but it reminds me of something that uh, Brian Adams and or Keith Scott would have done on the Reckless album around the same time. I Similar knew you were going to say that. I really? just knew you were going to say that because I was going to say it. Yes, it's <laughs> you hit you hit that on the head for sure. <laughs> Good. And I'm not just saying that because it's fan. I love Keith's playing, and it's yes. so it is so Brian Adams, and I'm yes. I'm such a fan of his, you know. Yeah. And yeah. Okay. Totally. Yeah. yeah. There's just something to the tone of those guitar licks that you're playing that reminds me of something he would have been doing around that time, and uh, just so happens he also happens to be Canadian. But um, yeah, that's so interesting that you hear that too. Okay. I wondered if I was alone in that. Yeah, you do you nope. have any you wrote this. Do you have any stories about what's the feeling? Um, no, I don't have any anything that, that jumps out. Only I just started playing those chords. Yeah. And it was this this uplifting uplifting song. And okay. a great uplifting melody and Johnny killed it. Yeah, he uh, once again, this is I mean, every song on here is, is an example of Johnny's immense talent as a vocalist, but this one really I think stands out as well. And again, going back to the sequencing, I am curious. Now, the next song, Take My Hand, that's probably my, my least favorite on the album. 
I still, and I should preface whenever I say that to somebody, it's it's not that I don't like the song. It's that when compared to the other nine songs on here, it's probably my least favorite. But when we were talking earlier about sequencing, how do you, you know, do you remember any stories or any, you know, sleepless nights again about oh, what what should we put ninth and tenth? What's going to close out the album? How does that part work? Well, it's kind of a natural, isn't it? And again, now I remember I wrote that song. Um, oh on a keyboard i bought myself a roll in jx8p one of these old analog keyboards and i found this sound in it called soundtrack i remember sitting in my apartment in toronto and coming up with these cool chords and yeah i wrote that one that's mm -hmm. right yeah. and, uh, so it was just kind of at the end i think johnny really loved it mm. and it was just kind of a way to close out the album and kind of fade fade off you know and yeah. again this is the early days of drum machines and lindrum so I played the keyboards, and then they put this cool uh, Lindrum track on it. And nice. Johnny's, the highlight of that is his vocal. Uh -huh. It goes high at the end. It's just yes. like, I don't know, it's a flavor song. But you know what? On our tour after that, we used to do that in our encore. And Johnny would come out. It's a real special moment. Really nice. It worked well live, yeah. Okay. Chills, man. He says something. I meant to go back and listen to this for the hundredth time and really try to figure out. He says something at the very end of the song. It's like a name or something. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you know what he says? It almost sounds like he says take or uh, yeah, maybe Jane. Something. I wondered if it was a girl. He was, I don't know. What Do you know what that is? I've never, you know what, till you pointed that out, I've really never heard that before. I guess I just always went by me, but now you're going to. I'm going to be listening to it. Uh, if you ever find out what that is, tell me, because I've been dying to know. And I've never been able to hear it good enough to know for sure, you know? Well, it's if I know Johnny, he's probably just saying, take, I don't know. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> well, now we That's know. That's cool. That you know, I didn't know that. Didn't yeah. know about it. Um, do you sleep with a guitar next to your bed? <laughs> actually, yes, actually... I do. I I take one up every night. I finish my studio. I'm the last one in bed. I always bring bring one upstairs with me. And I do because I play. I have you know the, a room upstairs that I like to write in as well. Mm. And sometimes I'll go up and play some more. But there's always a guitar, yes, in the bedroom in the corner because you never know. You never know. And I like to grab it in the morning too when I wake up. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I would imagine. And you've, you've probably got one in like every room of the house just in case for when the mood hits you between me and my daughter leah because she's a guitar player um uh, there's guitars all over the house there has yeah. to be yeah. yes yeah yeah all right well good well we did it the big prize this is uh like i said before i just think it's one of the great rock uh aor albums of the era and um 
I wish that everybody owned a copy because it it needs to be owned yeah. and heard. It's the best. Yeah, it's a classic for sure. And thanks. I am very proud of the record. We all are. And uh, I'm, I'm glad you like it. It still sounds amazing. Um, and John, I wanted to mention, um, I listened to your podcast with Holly Knight the other oh, day. And, wow, thank you. Yeah, and it, it was so good. She, I'm a, I'm a big fan. And I don't know how long ago you did that, but uh, it was very good. Oh, thank you. It was January, I think, or February. It was just a couple of months ago. I got really oh, lucky. So yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she um, uh, it was she, pretty recent. Yeah, it was. And she, we had a good chemistry. I'm, I rely heavily on that. Hopefully when people come on here and they, you know, you guys have done a million interviews. You've done it all, said it all. And I just hope that I'm able to bring something new that opens people up a little bit and warms them up. And we found a good a good uh, dynamic in that one. I got really lucky. Yeah, she, she's a good interview. She's a smart girl. And she's so in my our wheelhouse. Like, she's a rock. She's she a rock is. chick, and I love that. Oh, you mentioned that. Um, you two would be a match made in heaven. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I want to hear that album. Wow. And You know, it's it's funny. A long time ago, we did this one festival in Carmel, California, and it was a journey was headlining, was on their Raised on Radio tour. Mm. It's this huge festival on the big prize tour, actually, and she was on the bill when she had her band device. Yes. And it was, it was a... Show honeymoon suite, uh, Holly Knight, Andy Taylor from Duran Duran, and Journey closed the show at night. But anyways, I met her way back when in the eighties uh, backstage because she had that that and uh, yeah. device. I, I love that. What they were called her? Yeah, device. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and she was very very cool, very cool to to yeah. talk to. Good. Yeah. Oh man, I'm honored. Mm -hmm. Thank you for saying that. That means a lot coming from you, Derry. I appreciate that. You're a good hang. Good. Very Thanks, good. man. Well, look, uh, th good luck with everything in the quarantining. And I hope one day I get to see you guys live. That would be a dream. You're the, you're just the best. Yeah. Well, we're always working on the U.S. The U.S. end of things. It's crazy. I live down here and it would just, you know, we yeah. do a few things here and there, but it's tough. And we're looking at, uh, you know, we were on the Sweden Rock Festival this year, too. Were you um, really? Oh, man. You, you're familiar with that one? Yes. That festival over there? Yeah. Okay, we... We were actually on it, and it was the day Guns N' Roses was going to close, and we were on that that day oh. with all these other great bands. I was so excited, and of course, it's it's canceled. Yes. Oh, so frustrating. Yes. Yeah. Now you've been doing the '80s cruise, I think. The last I don't know if you do all of them, but you've done one or two, I think, in the last few years too, right? We just we did a Monsters of Rock our second one in in okay. January, I think February. That was amazing. Good. And the thing in Cancun yep. or whatever, we're starting to do a lot more of those, which Good. is great. Good. Mm -hmm. Do you find that there's more of an appetite for more Honeymoon Suite down here than you would maybe promoters realize or management realize? I mean, I, it, whenever I get most excited when I hear that you are on these cruises and stuff, because it's like, yes, finally hell, some... Hell yeah. yeah. <laughs> we just need to get, you know... On the right tour, people yeah. people love us. It's yeah. just the getting the exposure we need to get on the a right tour with somebody. We get on these monsters cruises and our from South America and Europe yeah. and Australia all over. People are out there. They love the band. Good. We just need to get out there more. I see no yeah. reason why it can't be Foreigner Sticks Honeymoon Suite 
or exactly whatever one of those big tours that people do those package tours you guys should be opening one of those things exactly i'm yeah. working on it good yeah good. man yeah good hope so well thank you Derry. you're the best man thanks for talking with me okay thank you all right there you have it Derry grand seriously if you don't own the big prize go get it and just start there then go check out everything else Honeymoon Suite has done because these guys are fantastic. The quality is so high. And with the new single too, tell me what you want. Go find that wherever you're going to find it. Buy it. Support these guys. I don't know why they're not opening some package tour. Well, I know why right now, but when life is normal again, I don't know why they're not on these bills. They should be. These songs were made to be played in front of huge audiences. I love them, and I hope you do too. Next week, we should have another deep dive for you, and uh, it's a it's a good one. It's a, it's a, it's kind of a big one. So I hope you guys will come back and stick with us and check everything out because uh, we're working hard over here to just keep you entertained, keep you informed, keep giving you the best quality uh, podcasts and music talk that we can come up with, okay? Thanks, everybody. We love you.